If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. John and I are looking at each other glum faced. Glum faced. How are you, Ed? I'm good. Well, actually, you know, I was greeted with a sight this morning when I arrived down to record the podcast, and there was our friend Macker on his hands and knees I hear. That's and a little... scrubbing brush <laughs> after poor old Sasha had a little accident. Oh, she's, and she's Macker very was, was scrubbing away. You see, this is it. This is our... soap and water. Soap and water. I know. I know. This is the problem with having a very, very old dog that sometimes she just can't get out quick enough. And uh, I was, I was in the vet with her yesterday around the Nutgrove Shopping Centre. Do you know that neck of the woods? I do, indeed. Up in the Nutgrove, and we, we did ECG tests and heart tests and all. She's fine. She's great. Right. But you're right. So I was... So never <laughs> let it be said that I'm sort of dilettante, John. It's, I, the, it's the only time I've seen you do any housework. I, I was there. Yeah, yeah. I'm the only one in the house who would clean up dog shite. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Which is fair enough. Anyway, apart from that, I have recovered. You have, you have. But, do you know, this week, do you remember we spoke to Sean Evers about energy? We straight into the pot, right? Yes. Spoke to Sean Evers about energy. Yeah. And he was saying, that this is what happens and la, 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 and there's changes and the Saudis and all. But we are now at the crunch, right? The crunch is what Putin hoped for, which was the moment where the West actually starts to run out of energy. Right? This was his ultimatum that we spoke about last week, where he was saying, pay us in rubles. Are you going to get anything? Yeah. Now, I had a conversation, right, during the week, as you do, with a friend of mine in Belgrade. Yeah. And this friend of mine in Belgrade, okay, you know, I know I know this, that's part of the world, right, used to work for a guy who we're going to talk about here yeah. called Mark Rich in a couple of minutes, a commodity trader. This guy trained under him, right? Right. And the Yugoslavs were extraordinary traders. And the reason was Tito, who we spoke about last year, yeah. or last week, Tito basically said, we're neither with the East nor the West, we're going to be independent. This was the, they were called the non-aligned group, which was Yugoslavia, Sweden, Indonesia, all these countries, right? yeah. But that turned Belgrade into the commodity trading center of the world because they could trade with the Russians, with the Soviets, right? They had close enough relations with the Soviets, okay? Both language and culture and religion. They're Orthodox Christians, right? So the Serbs have always been close to them, right? And they could trade with us. So Mm. you will find Yugoslav, former Yugoslavian traders everywhere. They're really good at it. This is what they do. And this friend of mine is a trader. And he said to me, Russia are going to win this, David. 
I said, really? I said, his name is Sasha, actually. He's not the dog who... Uh, <laughs> you were cleaning it. Yeah, I wasn't cleaning <laughs> Metaphorically and politically, we might be, right? Uh, and I said, Sasha, are you, are, you, are you sure? He said, I'm telling you, they're going to win this. He said, because you guys... Because you know, a lot of the Serbs feel very close to Russians. He said, you guys are about to reach the crunch point on commodities. Yeah. And this is the moment you run out of oil, of diesel, Right? Yeah. And this is what Putin's waiting for, right? That he can play the long game and he can take all the flack from us and they can sit in Western Ukraine, those Russian armies, doing nothing, losing troops. They don't care. But the long game is what happens when the West runs out of diesel, for example. But we've been and expecting we're very this. Close to it. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. But we have been expecting this as well. Well, it's just why Joe Biden released 100 million barrels of oil from the American reserves, right? Think about this. Yeah. They're releasing all the oil. Remember Sean was saying last week that after OPEC and the 1973-74 crisis, OECD set up all these agencies so that we would have reserves, yeah. so every country would have to buy them. We've been going through them, through them, through them, through them. And it looks like in the next two weeks, we're at a crunch period. And the interesting thing is, the economy stops when you've no diesel. Yeah. It stops. It's not that it slows down or it shudders or the prices go up or people. The economy actually stops. Yeah. The like machines every, don't work. Everything is run, not on petrol, on diesel. Yeah. And it's this is where the politics of the war, the geopolitics, the economics, the cost to the West of supporting Ukraine, the absolute cost to Western societies zeroes in and becomes real. Because at the moment, it's still a phony war for us. But I wonder, you know, if this is the case, I wonder, will we all of a sudden see the likes of Venezuela coming back into the fold and excuses being made and, you know, and then the West African countries where there's there's still yeah, a huge... Yeah, but we serves. still have to get there. We still have to get the crude from there to us. I mean, yes, it's, well, it's a long, It takes a long, long time. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm just saying what is going to be phenomenal is the next couple of weeks are going to be weeks that we've never experienced. Remember our quote from Vladimir Lenin? There are decades when Indeed. nothing happens and there are weeks <laughs> when decades happen and it's this week. And what we're going to do now, we're going to go across to London to a brilliant, brilliant journalist who's the Bloomberg's commodity specialist. His name is Javier Blas. He's written an amazing book called The World for Sale, which is the history of commodity trading. Right. Oh, we're excellent. going to get an update. So let's go to London and let's talk to Javier. Now I have in my hand a book that I got in the post, just out of the blue, the paperback of an amazing book called The World for Sale, Money, Power and the Traders Who Barter the Earth's Resources by two journals, Javier Blas, who's on the line, and Jack Farshi. Now, the interesting thing is years ago, I'm going to talk to Javier in a second about the book. Years ago, when I ended up, as people who are listening to the podcast know, working in Russia, the people, I thought I was first in there in Russia, but not at all. There was a whole subculture of other weirdos there, other pioneers uh, who were commodity traders. And the book is all about this extraordinarily secretive, unbelievably wealthy and extraordinarily powerful, tiny amount of people who actually trade the world's resources, who actually trade it, who actually get it from A to B, who actually influence. So we're going to talk about that because there can be no week when this is more relevant than a week in which energy prices, all the prices of commodities, the Earth's bounty, if you will, 
are going through the roof and people don't know what the hell's going on. Javier is on the line from London. Javier, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. On the contrary, thank you for taking the call. Javier, I want to talk to you about the immediate, right? I have been told that this country and most European countries, but particularly this country, is maybe a week or two away from a severe diesel shortage, i.e. running out of diesel. To what extent are we really close to the precipice here? Well, we have a big problem with, with oil, oil supplies, but the biggest problem that Europe faces right now is diesel supply. And the reason is that we buy a lot of diesel already produced by Russia. It's not just crude that we buy and refine. We actually buy diesel from Russia, and that's not flowing into Europe. What means is that the whole of Europe has moved to a just-in-time diesel supply. We're trying to grab whatever we can get and send it into Europe, which means that rather than having the typical 30 to 60 days of supply on storage, we have a lot less. Are we going to see a shortage? I don't know, but you do not really want to run whole economies on just-in-time diesel supply because at the end of the day, this is, forget about gasoline or petrol, diesel is really what keeps an economy moving, is what keeps you know the trucking sector, the farming sector, the heavy machinery, some of the railways. So you really need it, and it's very concerning. And it was very interesting that when the International Energy Agency on Friday met and discussed a release of strategic stocks, the ministers of the International Energy Agency, which is the rich countries, particularly made emphasis of the situation on diesel. And they said that the ministers discussed and noted the particular difficulties in diesel market. When policymakers told to you about that they have discussed the difficulties, that's a policymaker speak for big trouble ahead. Absolutely. And I mean, it is an extraordinary thing that a country can, we forget that countries can run out of energy. You can actually run out of diesel. You can stop. That's the first thing. The second thing is when people become aware that there is a potential diesel shortage, the amazing thing about energy is we panic. We panic. We saw that in the UK before Christmas over petrol, the big long lines. We in Ireland couldn't understand it because we were thinking, what are, they, what are the Brits getting? So, Because we know they like their cars and all that malarkey and they're a bit more car friendly than we are, right? But it was that idea of the lines that once people know that there's a potential diesel shortage, if you're a farmer, if you're a haulier, right? There's two things you look at. One is the price. The price goes up, it changes you're, are we going to deploy fertilizers? How are we going to actually farm this year? How are we going to, how much, many trucks do we have on the road? But the other thing is you panic and there's a run on the existing supply and that can happen overnight like that. You can go from non-panic to total panic straight away. Yeah, and that's the risk. And I think that we should, we should try not to panic. Uh, one thing is moving into a just-in-time, which is not ideal. Another one is to actually have a problem of supplies. Nothing will make a supply problem more likely to happen is if everyone tries to go to the petrol station and, and refill. Is a good way to run a system? No, it's not ideal. Um, can we have some problems here and there? Yes. And certainly prices of diesel are going to remain high for, for the foreseeable future. And I do think that if Europe has an oil problem in the next probably three to six months, that problem first will manifest on the diesel market. 
Okay, so that, that's kind of, it's, again, it's fascinating because your average punter doesn't use diesel because, as you say, cars use petrol. We kind of forget that the foundational energy of the economy is diesel. And that's where we have the problem because we get that stuff directly from the Russians. Can I just ask you before we talk about the book, give me a sense. You've been an energy correspondent for Bloomberg. You know the market inside out. You know the commodities market inside out. That's going from food to rare earths to commodities to petrol. In your career, have you seen a period like this? No. This is unique. And probably you had to go to the 1970s to see something similar because we are having every commodity going up. We are having real disruptions in supply. The shortages are real. It's affecting everything. And one is compounding the other. So think about, and you are mentioning, you know, we have a problem with supplies of diesel. That makes farming more difficult. Farmers are already struggling with fertilizer supplies, which are scarce and extremely expensive. That is going to increase food prices down the road. Uh, and th that those kind of loop effects is the ones that we do not understand today. And they are going to take a few months to develop. But the way that the market is behaving, you have to go to 1973, 74, the first oil crisis, to see something similar. And also what is special right now is it's not just an oil crisis. This is a, a full energy crisis in the sense that it's affecting the price of oil, but also of natural gas, of coal, and of course, electricity. And that's different from the 70s. The 70s was mostly an oil crisis. So that was just about transportation. And with a bit of a spillover on heating, because heating oil, obviously, and a bit of a spillover on electricity, because we were using a bit of fuel oil to, to produce electricity. But today is every form, excluding green energies, every form of energy is getting a lot more expensive. And even new energies are getting affected because you need a lot of steel if you want to to build a wind farm. And all of a sudden, steel prices are at a record high. And you need a lot of very interesting minerals like lithium and things like that. You want to do or cobalt, you want to do high-performance batteries for the electric cars. And all of a sudden, those metals are also extremely expensive. So you, you are getting this massive energy shock. Uh, and Andrew Bailey of the Bank of England the other day said that you have to go back to the 70s. And I agree, there is nothing similar in 40, 45 years that I have ever seen, and certainly nothing on my, well, there's a lot of gray hair already on my head, so 25-year career covering commodities, I have never seen anything like this. And the one thing we know about the 70s, there was a number of things, right? There was a monumental transfer of wealth around the world. This is what people kind of also forget, that yes, there was an oil energy price crisis, but this transfer of wealth changed geopolitics forever or at least for the last 50 years, there was a profound, disturbing Western recession directly after the oil crisis. There was a profound change of ideology in the West after the oil crisis, not just changing the way we consume oil, but actually the ideology of Reagan and Thatcher. That is all, these are all children of that crisis. So we're, we're talking about something. And of course, militarily, the Soviet Union because it was emboldened and enriched by the oil increase in prices, went and decided to have a go at Afghanistan. So you, all these things are, the whole thing is so complicated. And the one thing I want to talk, so we're not going to talk about that and you know, will all these things happen again, but we will 
John and I will tease these out. But it brings me to the book because the book, The World for Sale, really is, it's a history book. It's an economics book. It's an energy book. It's written like a thriller. The characters are fantastic in it. I mean, they are fantastic. And I'll just tell you, when I, years ago, ended up in Russia working for a French bank, and I, I said this at the top, the people who knew much more about Russia, much more about Yugoslavia, where I was as well, much more about Ukraine, were not ambassadors, diplomats, political correspondents, economists, but these unusual creatures called commodity traders. And this book is about them. Tell me about them because they're fascinating individuals and they control the world's commodity market. So at the moment, these are the most important people in the world right now. So the commodity traders, I mean, people think about banks and rows of computers and people trading or perhaps the markets in Chicago where people buying. But all of that is derivatives. All of that is paper commodity. The commodity traders for us are the guys who actually, and I say guys because most of them are male. There are very few women on this industry, sadly. These are the businessmen who go to wherever the commodities are, so in this case, say Russia, buy them and then ship them, uh, sometimes process them into the consuming center. So there's the business people who go into Brazil and get soybean, go to the Democratic Republic of Congo and get copper and cobalt, they go to Russia and get their oil, et cetera, et cetera, and then they are shipping it across the world to wherever the consumption is, in Europe, in the US, in China, and, and, and elsewhere. And, and most of them really move in the, into the shadows. It's a very secretive industry. It's largely uh, privately owned with very few companies actually listed, and they make billions of dollars. It's extremely profitable, and it's not only that the companies make billions of dollars, they're individuals. There are many billionaires who are commodity traders. And in many cases, they put business above everything else, politics, morals, and often the law. So it's not the current situation with sanctions on Russia, with political tension. This is a dream for this them. Is, that's this what is I was saying. This they, is ideal for them. This is what they hope for because it pushes everything into the dark area. Everything then is down to personal connections. Who do you know? Who can you call? What's your network? You know, Because once you take any industry off the grid, so to speak, then you allow these guys... I mean, this is, this is a bonanza for those guys. These are the guys... I mean, let me just give you a few examples... Yeah, give us a few uh, examples. That, ...that they have done. So these are the guys who helped Saddam Hussein to bypass UN sanctions and continue selling his oil and making money personally. These are the guys, and they work with anyone. They don't mind a right-wing politician or a left-wing politician. They help a Pinochet in Chile to sell copper, and they help Fidel Castro to barter sugar for oil. They uh, supply American wheat at the peak of the Cold War to, to Moscow, to, to the Soviet Union. Just in mind, this happened in the 1970s, and, and 1960s and 1970s. Just American commodity traders selling American wheat with the help of American taxpayer credits into the Soviet Union. It was a scandal at the point. They held their... Libyan rebels 10 years ago during the civil war in Libya to get their hands into gasoline and diesel so they could fight Muammar al-Gaddafi army. And all of this was done by privately owned individuals, which put business above everything else. And also they did one 
perhaps most of the nasty things that they did was supply oil to South Africa during apartheid in violation of UN sanctions and embargo. I know. And all the, by the way, all these stories are in the books. The, the characters are absolutely extraordinary. Uh, and I re- do remember many years ago finding myself in Serbia in 96, 97, between the Bosnian stroke Croatian war and the Kosovo war, and being in the Hyatt in Serbia. And the lobby was just full of these sort of characters who were keep selling to Milosevic and doing deals with Milosevic, and they might get paid by the Serbs in some agricultural product, and then they'd buy the Serbs some petrol. And it was, and I was thinking to myself, who are these people? And the book is full of them. I mean, one of the ones that people might know the name is a guy, Mark Rich. Uh, if you're John, you're into music. Denise Rich, his former wife, wrote uh, songs for Aretha Franklin. Oh, right. There okay. you go. She's uh, a fantastic person. But these type of characters, who was this guy and why is he so critical to the whole story? Mark Rich is perhaps the most famous of the commodity traders. He, he passed away a few years ago, but he was in many ways the godfather of the oil market as we know it today. He was one of the first oil traders who bought and sold oil as a commodity. And that sounds today like normal. I mean, like, well, oil is a commodity, but in the in the 50s and 60s and all the way until the early 70s, oil was controlled by seven big international companies, some of them Americans, some of them British, that controlled the market vertically. Um, oil produced on BP oil fields was refined on, on BP refineries and then sold into BP petrol stations. The market later broke apart and traders like Mark Rich started buying and selling. Mark Rich also created his own company, Mark Rich & Co., which later was renamed as Glencore, and today is the world's largest commodity trader and listed in the London stock market. And he is also the personification of this commodity trader who was uh, willing to do anything, even you know, if his country will say no or the law said no. He traded with he, Iran. With Iran, wasn't that his thing? He traded with Iran when Iran was under the sanctions of America, even though he was American. And then he, he was an American. And he was trading with Iran as Iran was taking dozens of American diplomats and kept them hostages for, for more than a year. So he was indicted in the U.S. He, he never faced trial because he fled. He, he just left the United States and took refuge in Switzerland and the Swiss authorities protected him. They look, I always look the other way. I always look the other way. That's the Swiss way. And they put him, the Americans put him on the FBI most wanted list on the 10 guys that the FBI was looking worldwide for a good, probably, I think that he was there for 10, 15 years. Interestingly, he received a full pardon by Bill Clinton on his very last day. Now, why why do you think Bill Clinton pardoned Mark Rich? Well, Bill Clinton said that nothing will happen, but the former wife of Mark Rich was a large donor of the Democratic Party, made a huge donation uh-huh. to the presidential library of Bill Clinton. And of course, nothing of this prompted Bill Clinton to issue this part of the No, never, law. never, never. It's always never John, happened. It's follow Absolutely the money. Not. Follow the money. Always. The last thing that Bill Clinton did on his last day <laughs> on the White House before That's he great, just literally left the building was to sign the pardon for Mark Rich. And it was a monumental scandal in the United States, as you will in mind, because, David, everyone followed the money, as you are saying, and everyone was like, oh, come on. 
Now, tell you, the book is, I mean, we can't get into it now, but it's full of fantastic characters. A character that will be known to Irish people, Oled Deripaska, who actually owns a large aluminium company in Limerick. Oh, right. right. And he's now under sanctions and he's there. He emerges as an aluminium trader. He's close to Putin, etc. But let's now just go to the Kremlin because these characters are, these characters in the West, the traders in the West, and a lot, basically, just so you know, most of the Russian oligarchs that we know now, Berezovsky, Khodorkovsky, Abramovich, they're all, they're all commodity traders. That's where they start. All these guys. So when the great, you, you call it the single biggest, let's focus on Russia before we go. You call it in the book, the last great fire sale, which was when Russia opened up, to what extent are these characters in the book absolutely critical to understanding Russia now and the yeah. power play and Putin and the people around him? They are absolutely critical because a lot of the oligarchs that we are sanctioning today were financed and they started in business thanks to the Western commodity traders. These Western commodity traders partnered with them during the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 90s to get Russian resources out of Russia and into the international markets. So that's where the money came. But also the commodity traders, when Vladimir Putin started to consolidate power and use oil and natural resources as a way to consolidate power, the commodity traders helped the Kremlin to move that oil and those natural resources out of the Soviet Union, out of Russia, sorry, into the international market. And particularly since 2014, President Vladimir Putin invades Crimea and takes Crimea out of Ukraine. We start imposing some sanctions. Who go into Russia full on, continue to do business and help Putin to sell the oil and the metals and the wheat and other commodities and make the money? Well, those commodity traders, they, they have no problem and they have made making hundreds of millions of dollars helping Putin sell his natural resources. And in the process, and they will deny that, well, we are only doing business, but in the process of doing that business, they help Vladimir Putin significantly over the last seven years into consolidating his power, even if Europe and America was starting to get very serious and putting sanctions for what he has already done in Ukraine, even before the last five weeks. And the more sanctions, the more dislocation, the more unusual market behavior, the more these commodities have to find their way, let's say, to China or to India, and they have to be rediverted. And the more our diesel becomes a problem, the more prices spike up, the more money these guys make. Already the last few weeks have been extremely profitable for the Western commodity traders. And let's not forget, the Western commodity traders they have their own nemesis in China and India and elsewhere. They, they are Chinese commodity traders where a, a London-based or an American-based commodity trader cannot do a business because, you know, the Western governments are starting to get a bit serious about, no, you cannot touch that Russian oil anymore. Well, a Chinese commodity trader will say, well, thank you very much. It's a $30 discount. I'm just going to take it. Move it from the Black Sea port across the Mediterranean, on the Atlantic and on the Indian Ocean. And I'm just going to put it on a refinery somewhere in China where I'm going to resell it and probably make, well, they're making a killing because you can't buy, Russia is a distressed seller and they will sell to anyone. A huge discounts 
And that commodity, the moment that that commodity is on the international market, it doesn't need to be sold at that discount. It's, it's a great profit. It's, it's just, if you could arbitrage that risk and take the political, the, the, the credit, and the reputational risk of moving Russian commodities, it's just, it's, it's an ATM. It's really a machine of making money. And then finally, you, we mentioned Mark Rich being pardoned for by Bill Clinton. God knows why. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Could have nothing to do with his wife's large donation to the Clinton Library. But equally, the Tory party, if you look at the travails of the Tory party in London at the moment, and Boris Johnson's close alliances to all sorts of unsavory Russian characters, all of them are commodity traders too. That's where their money comes from. All of them, a, a lot of the Russian money comes from natural resources. It's not just the oil or the gas, it's the aluminium, it's the nickel, it's the uh, precious metals, it's the farming. I mean, Russia is a powerhouse in farming. There are fortunes built on something so humble as wheat. And all of them are recycling that money in London. And a lot of that money that they recycle, some of that money that they recycle, ends on the Conservative Party via donations. To Absolutely. ensure more recycling. Indeed. Javier, fantastic stuff. The book is The World for Sale. It's a really great read. And uh, I advise everyone in the podcast, just grab a copy. It's brilliant. And it's so timely. You know, it's always the case. Follow the money and you get close to the truth of what's actually happening in the world. So listen, Javier, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having us. Great stuff. Talk to you soon. Thank you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hmm. So you no. should have hung around with me in the late 90s in these places. Yeah. I'm the crack, man. <laughs> these guys, and actually when he was talking there, it reminded me of that movie, War Dogs with Jonah Hill in it from a few years back. About who, these guys? Uh, these guys who, uh, yeah, who like Jonah Hill and those, who play, they play, I think they were originally commodity traders. I've only seen Jonah Hill in uh, The Wolf of Wall Street. Oh yeah, well he's terrific in that. Really but he's of, really good in this he's as well. trying to encourage a man to smoke crack with him <laughs> in the telephone box. Yeah. So I was like, who doesn't want to make like that? <laughs> and his cousin as well. <laughs> exactly, yeah. 
but but they turned into arms dealers from being commodity it's dealers. It's very close. But that's what I was that's what I was saying. It sounds as if it's very close. But here's the big question. Right now, since we're a couple of weeks out from zero diesel. Yeah. Is it time? Could be a couple of days. Who knows? Yeah. Well, sure, sure. Is it now time to pay the man in rubles? Okay. Well, this is the interesting thing. If the West, so over the weekend, Germany, Spain, and Italy said they would not pay in rubles. They said Mm. this is blackmail, right? Yes. Now, when you're in a war, when you're in a war, because I mean, Europe and Russia are at war together in all intents and purposes, right? Blackmail is the least of your worries. Okay. (laughs) You know, it's blackmail is something you do, you accuse somebody in peacetime. Oh, you're blackmailing me. Don't do that. That's not nice. We're in a war with them. If we pay in rubles, it is a signal that Russia has us by bollocks. And that my friend Sasha from Belgrade is right, that Russia will win this. That we are just too dependent on them and they hold all the cards, even though we feel that we're much stronger. Mm. So that's the first thing. If we pay in rubles, the Western alliance shatters, right? Because the Americans are not energy dependent on Russia. So the Americans, the Achilles heel for the alliance with Western Europe and America is energy. America is an energy independent country. They have their own energy, yes. right? They yeah. always have yeah, that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It shatters that alliance. It then emboldens China to say, well, we don't have to make any decisions on Russia, right? Okay. And all those dominoes that the West was hoping for, like India, like China, you know, yeah. all then are off the off the can. So, you know, everything for the last month depends on Western unity, right? If the Western edifice cracks, Russia has won. Then they go into the peace negotiations with Ukraine with rubles flowing. It's not that the rubles flowing is going to you know, really embolden them or bolster the ruble the exchange. They don't care about that, yeah. right? Because what they've done now is they've actually introduced so many commodity controls that the ruble is stable because nobody's trading it. And when there's no, when there's no market, it can't, it can't move around. The ruble is zero, isn't it? Well, it's not really Now, I do happen to believe that Russia will experience hyperinflation in the next two or three years. Because oh. I think I think if they go through with this, and if the West recalibrate, as you said, over the next couple of months and find different sources, we will go into the next winter, right? Yeah. With much, much clearer sense of how long the West can actually survive ex-Russia. The Russian economy will crater. There's no foreign exchange in Russia. Yeah. After having seen their army look pretty mediocre and unequipped, they're going to have to actually boost the spending of the army. The only way they can do this is by printing rubles and they will have hyperinflation like the, like the Yugoslavs had after right, okay. war. So I can really and, see... And, and where will that lead to? Would that be like, you know, 1939? Well, hyperinflation always happens when a country runs out of foreign exchange and you run out of foreign exchange in two ways. One of which is you don't export anything or the other which is you're sanctioned by everybody else. Yes. Right, so they can't get it. And if the only way they can get foreign exchange now is by having Europe hostage through energy... Over time, the Europeans, all of us will figure out different places to get energy, whether it's Qatar, pretty unsavory places anyway, as you said, maybe Venezuela, maybe West Africa, whatever. So I think Russian hyperinflation is coming down the track. But much more pressingly for us right now is that Putin sees in this diesel crunch 
an opportunity to force us to pay in rubles, which in itself isn't that important. But what it does, it puts a crack between America and Europe in energy. So now the ball is back in Washington's court as of today saying, okay, how are you, America, going to guarantee European energy supplies in the next four or five months? And that's a huge ask for the Yanks. But we've just done this big 15 billion deal with the Yanks. Yeah, but it's all in the future. It's not coming now. The problem is right now we are at the end of a very greasy pipe full of diesel yeah. from Russia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as that's turned up, and, and, and if they turn off diesel, first of all, what happens, as I said, is once people get wind of this, everyone will panic. So demand will spike up, and whatever left little diesel is left will go straight away, yeah. which is why all governments at the moment are not talking about this, because they don't want to create panic, okay? Right. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, without diesel, your economy just stops. Your trains don't go. All your farmers don't farm, Right. The vast majority, just think of diesel generators. Your electric yeah. picnic won't happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like all those festivals. My Range Rover won't work. Ranges, but like all those festivals, all electric jennies, every single, yeah, const- yeah, yeah. Every, single every single construction site will close. Every single one. So we're in for a very strange couple of weeks, Johnny. You see those walking shoes. Plain chicken with Putin. W- w- walking shoes. It's yeah. plain chicken with Putin yeah. over, over the ruble. But I think now you and I have got to start walking a lot. Yeah. Okay. We have to start con- conceiving of not spending any money on anything other than wind farms, John. Exactly. I think we will be hermetic, like two hermits for the next couple yeah. of weeks. Yeah. And I think what you should do is you should go back to your 1974 record collection, <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah. Which I believe- Full of T-Rex. Full of T-Rex. And just- Channel your inner mid-70s. Yeah. Because that's what's coming. Yeah, out with the candles. Out with the candles. While I have you there, listen, I just want to say thank you so much to all our Patreons who really supported myself and John throughout the last nearly three years. Three years, wow. it's a long time. I thought it only started last week. It's such a good crack, though, isn't it? It is, it is, it is. It's like like having the dream gig. (laughs) Thank you very, very much. And if you do want to support us on Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. You get ad-free, you get courses, you get chats, you can ask me questions, all sorts of stuff, and you really become part of the gang. So that's patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. And again, thank you very much. Thank you.